0: Hey, Clinical Pearls family, it's Dr. Chapa, and this podcast is a little different because I've made a commitment to include more of our great residents in these podcast episodes. So joining me for her first podcast is...
1: Catherine Jimenez.
0: Dr. Jimenez. So, Dr. Jimenez, you're special for a lot of reasons because you're one of our great residents. Thank you. But more importantly, uh, obviously... A woman in medicine and it's women in medicine month isn't it it's women in medicine yeah
1: month. that's what the emails are saying
0: that's yeah. what the emails are saying <laughs> and then second it's hispanic heritage month and you're you're hispanic
1: this is true
0: this is true and you yep. have the the triple threat what's the triple threat <laughs> uh well
1: i'm in my third trimester
0: and you're pregnant oh my goodness so we hit with the trifecta so woman in medicine Latin descent for Hispanic heritage, and definitely a personal note because you are pregnant. So it's great to have you on the program. This is meant to be totally informal, but also educational because you know how we do it. And what, what's our topic today?
1: Today, we're going to be talking about antenatal surveillance.
0: For sure. Super important. And there's so much misperception still out there. And we're going to knock this out. By the way, do we practice this at all?
1: Uh, no, we do
0: not is, is it scripted at all?
1: No, and it's terrifying. <laughs>
0: But you see, guys, this is what it's about, right? Because also, and I really did think, how boring is it for one person to keep talking all the time? Surely we can do this in a much more uh, interactive way. So let's get started with Dr. Jimenez, one of our great residents, upper-level residents, about to finish, and we're going to cover antepartum fetal surveillance. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Antipartum fetal surveillance are tests that are employed worldwide in an attempt to reduce the rate of stillbirth. Well, do they actually do that? I'm not going to answer that here because I want to leave that for part two because the answer may actually surprise you. Okay, intro aside. Again, I'm here with Dr. Katherine Jimenez and we're covering antepartum fetal surveillance. So, Cat, tell me about this. When is the usual gestational age that we begin antenatal surveillance?
1: Usually at 32 weeks.
0: You see, and that's totally right. And I love that because she's about to get ready to go into her own practice, and 32 weeks is correct. This is a third trimester issue, although ACOG does say that there're certain maternal conditions that prompt interventions earlier. You can begin as early as 28 weeks. The problem is, then you get all this weird interpretation things just because of prematurity. So, talk to us a little bit about that. What is, and of course, one of the antenatal tests is a non stress test, right?
1: Uh, yes that's
0: right all right so using the nst the non-stress test as an antepartum surveillance starting at 32 weeks which all of them start at 32 weeks all of these different tests but tell us specifically what we're looking for in other words if somebody's that we've got a, a third-year medical student runs through ob-gyn rotation what is a normal quote quote normal what does that even mean i guess a reactive nst so a uh, reactive nst
1: or non-stress test is placing a woman on a monitor for 20 minutes and we're monitoring fetal heart rate and tachometry for contractions and we want to have two uh, fetal accelerations of the heart rate which is defined as a 15 beats per minute increase in the heart rate over 15 seconds or 15 by 15 as we say
0: excellent and that's so you need two of those
1: yeah i mean two in 20 minutes to be considered reactive um and that's a greater than 32 weeks but Under 32 weeks, uh, we have to have, you know, the babies are smaller. I'd like to think of it like they're not jumping around as much. Right. And so the acceleration is only 10 beats per minute by over 10 seconds. So a 10 by 10, as we
0: call it. And still two.
1: And still two
0: in 20 minutes. So that's totally it. Remember, guys, this is not opinion. This is all based on the ACOG uh, committee opinion and SMFM data. So a reactive NST is 2 A cells, 15 beats per minute by 15 seconds over 20 minutes over 32 weeks. But between 28 and 32 weeks, the excursion of the heart rate is actually less. It's actually 10 by 10. So here's a good question for you because this is real, real world, right? <laughs> So, we're doing an n s t and I see one little variable d cell okay, so it's okay here it goes it's uh, let's say it's about thirty seconds in duration uh and it only happens once is that still can I still call that a reactive n s t what do you think?
1: If there's two accelerations, uh, yeah, it's still reactive, I would
0: say. Now, just for y'all to get this. See, that's why I love doing this. Not prepped, not scripted, and she's totally right. And it's amazing because there's all this misperception that, uh, oh, my gosh, if there's anything out there, uh, even a little one isolated variable that's not reactive, that's not true. Actually, SMFM in the college state, you can't – it's actually a loud cat that if you have a small variable that's isolated – and it's less than 30 seconds, it does not require a prompt any further evaluation. Uh, so remember, two A cells, 15 by 15, over a 20-minute period, or 10 by 10, between 28 and 32 weeks. Now, here's a question. Why is it 20 minutes?
1: I actually don't know why. All right. So I
0: stumped her. Well, That's great. I, well, why? Well, I, yeah, maybe, I think you do know.
1: Well, maybe. So I know there's
0: uh, fetal sleep cycles. And- Boom. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> Just say. See, she knows it. <laughs> so fetal sleep cycles. So in utero, this is, I thought was fan- it was very interesting. When ultrasounds really started becoming much more adoptable, uh, they did ultrasounds, uh, for a prolonged period of time and found that babies actually sleep in utero based on lack of movement for about 20-minute intervals. So it's to prevent you from reading a 20-minute sleep cycle as non-reactive and causing a an natrogenic intervention when not necessary. So by extending it up to 40 minutes, you've now overcome the limit or the probability of a sleep cycle. So if it's not reactive in 20, no problem, right? You stand at another 20. But if you don't hit the criteria of a reactive test... By 40, you got to do something else. All right, Kat, you and I take call together?
1: Yes. All right.
0: Now, here's here, why is this incorrect? And you know that this happens. And for, your, for those of you listening, you know this may have happened to you as well. So we get patients sent to the hospital, labor and delivery all the time. Uh, and for our nursing staff, because we have a lot of nurses who listen, uh, and you check out to your provider and say, hey, she's here for an NST. Looks great. Uh, I'm going to send her home. Don't worry. It's category one. So my response mm-hmm. is always, hey, wait, it's not category one. They're like, no, no, it's, it's got moderate variability. There's no D cells. I see A cells. It looks great. It's Category 1. I say it's not. So <laughs> who's right? Is it Category 1 cat or what? Remember, for antepartum surveillance.
1: Right. So it's uh, the wording, how we word it. So Good. when you're not in labor, you are either reactive or non-reactive. Love it. Simple. Um, when you're in labor, um, that's when you start calling things Category 1, 2, or 3.
0: Perfect. So, so did y'all get that? So And it's amazing how we take things for granted. And I know what they're saying. They're saying it looks good. But technically and correctly, an NST is not Category 1. Those are intrapartum classifications. And that goes all the way back to 2009 with the three-tier system, which we're not going to get into now because some are arguing for a five-tier system. But the idea is an NST, the non-stress test, again, is either reactive or non-reactive, but not Category 1. Now that we've wrapped up the non-stress test, the quick summary review. Remember that a non-stress test ideally is done after 32 weeks, and we're looking for two A cells of 15 beats per minute for 15 seconds, two of those over a 20-minute period, but it can extend up to 40 minutes if necessary. This is in the background of normal variability and in the background of a normal rate of 110 to 160 beats per minute. Variable decelerations, as long as it's isolated and less than 30 seconds, do not prompt further intervention. But recurrent variables are a different story that does prompt further evaluation. All right, Kat, that was great. We did the NST. But you know what? I want to step back for a moment because we're talking about antepartum surveillance, right? And we went right into non-stress tests because we don't mess around. We get right to it. But NST is just one way that we do antepartum surveillance. Mm-hmm. So throw out a couple of other names that we do. Some are technology and some that we we use to instruct patients to do, like at home, like certain things that can pay attention to. And that's something that we need to talk to as well. Mm-hmm. So talk to us in general. What are different ways to do antepartum surveillance?
1: Um, so one way is with ultrasound. Okay. We do biophysical profiles or modified biophysical profiles. Um, I've even seen... Um, the contraction stress test, oxytocin challenge test, right. sometimes called, and then for patients at home, uh, fetal kick counts is a big thing that a lot of people are do- people do or providers tell their patients to do.
0: All right, guys. So listen, from a third-year medical student, if you're a nursing school, of course, or an intern, antepartum surveillance is different tests, all right? That's just a bucket. So as Dr. Jimenez says, we've already covered one. We've already covered the non-stress test. Well, if there's a non-stress test, it implies there's a stress test. (laughs) But the contraction stress test, I don't want to talk about too much because rarely done, we really call it now a trial of labor. And we extend the amount of Pitocin to see if there's persistent late D cells we're worried about about utero placental insufficiency, but we really don't do CSTs very often, contraction stress tests. But then you also hit biophysical profiles, which if we don't have time to get into in this section, we definitely have to go over because that's another greatly misunderstood test. But I do want to pay attention to something that historically I remember telling patients, oh my gosh, you got to keep a log. You got to go home. You got to lie on your side and, and put little hash marks on how much you feel the baby move, right? Mm-hmm. Kick counts. So, Kat, tell me a little bit about what you understand about kick counts, and I want to get into the affirm trial. That you ready, guys? Pretty much poo pooed all of that. <laughs> now, kick counts are important, but walk us down this kick counts issue, and then we'll talk about affirm in just a minute.
1: So, when I was in medical school, I often heard obstetric providers in the clinic telling their patients um, it, once they entered the third trimester that. The baby needed to move at least five times in an hour or 10 times in two hours. Good. And if there was anything less than that, then that would be a concern for decreased fetal movement and yeah. to go to labor and delivery. Hmm. Um, and it's something I found myself rehearsing to patients as well when I started residency because I learned that in medical school.
0: For sure. And, and again, that, was, that actually is a form of antepartum surveillance. So we said there's technology-based, whether ultrasound or just Doppler with the non-stress test. Or things that she can do at home, which are non-technology-based, like this whole issue of kick counts. So let's drop the bat. See, she said five per hour or ten every two. And the issue was there was no real number of what actually was normal. Well, all this changed with the affirm trial that was a really, really uh, well-conducted study. And it was published in 2018 in The Lancet. Okay? So here's what they found. Having a structured program of kick counts. In other words, go home, count these numbers, and if you don't do these interventions... Well, it was very effective at increasing maternal anxiety, really effective at increasing procedures, really effective at increasing C-sections. And guess what it did to the overall stillbirth rate between those with intervention and those without?
1: It probably didn't change
0: it. It did nothing. How about that? So this was such a big issue that this actually made its way into the June 2021 ACOG Bulletin on Antepartum Surveillance that we're talking about now. And guys, please understand, kick counts are super important. Fetal movement is super important. But having a structured way where if it moves five or if it doesn't move in 10 and two hours, all that's been thrown out the window. So here's what I like to tell patients. I remember telling patients to do a monthly breast exam at the end of their cycle every month. That was called a very breast self-examination. I mean, very rigorous, very scientific, very schematic And that didn't do anything. It just increased anxiety and and tests. Didn't decrease breast cancer. Well, just as breast self-exams have gone the way of breast awareness, this is the whole thing with fetal kick counts. So no more structured movement, just fetal awareness. Just pay attention in general. And is there any change in it? But the affirm trial is really pivotal because it changed what we think about kick counts. So having said that, what do you do, uh, Kat, to your patients here in residency? How do you explain it to them?
1: Uh, So this is something I actually picked up from my dad, who's a family medicine doctor who used to do obstetrics. Um, And some women, they go throughout their day, they get busy, they do a bunch of stuff. So I just tell them, you know, if you're ever worried that you haven't felt your baby move, first just lay down and just pay attention to the baby. And a lot of times they'll say, oh, I felt the baby move, and they'll be okay. Um, And so what I'll tell them is, you know, if you feel like there's just a decrease from normal, um, like just what you feel like baby sure. usually does, or if you lay down and you don't feel just, you know, a few movements, then maybe be concerned.
0: So that's totally, totally what the whole issue of fetal awareness has moved into. So that's correct. So again, guys, kick counts super important, but rather than being a structured issue as part of surveillance, just overall fetal awareness is the issue. Now here's, as we're talking about this, I can't leave it because something just came to my, my mind. Remember, we're not scripted, right? We're just kind of conversation. What about, now I want to see what you think, okay, because there is an answer to this, and it happens a lot in labor and delivery, and again, thank goodness for our nurses who keep us in out of danger, right? Mm-hmm. But especially from the nursing side, and this act came out of actual tradition, but it's not really rooted in evidence, where patients will come in, and our report uh, to the person on call is, well, she's here because the baby's not moving as much, but she hasn't eaten, so I gave her some juice. All right. Here we go, cat. So let's cover this. All right. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. All right, cat, we're going to wrap this up here because I want to leave biophysical profile. That's a lot of stuff right there. That definitely, by the way, did you hear that laughter? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, well, so for those of you who are listening, <laughs> we are literally in the resident clinic right now. We just finished our procedures. Uh, so again, very real world. We just wanted to give you this information and and just like if we were at, at checkout. Um, so I want to leave biophysical profile for the next one because it's so deep. There's so many issues there uh, and the modified, because that's my favorite, the modified biophysical. And which one is actually better? I mean, is it the NST? Is it contraction stress? And we're going to answer that. Uh but we're going to do that next time. Okay. But for now, let's talk about this issue about eating and fetal movement for kick counts. All right. So okay, give us a scenario. What, what do you? What's your take on this?
1: So I know what happens a lot of times. The patient shows up to labor and delivery or they're at home either way. And you say, drink some fluids, drink some juice, give baby a little sugar,
0: yeah.
1: you know, run some D5 through the IV and see if baby perks up. Uh, and you see all these things happen, and then sometimes you might think. And they
0: do, right? Yeah, okay. and that, you know, it
1: works, and you said the Must baby work. responded. Um, but it might have happened anyway, <laughs> regardless of if you
0: see that, the sugar. That's correct. And so th- this is a couple of notes. Number one, babies don't have sweet tooth. So baby doesn't care if you had something sweet to eat or not. But we have to remember, let's go back to the science, all right? And I'm not against, again, be very clear, unless she's like a frank diabetic or something, giving somebody some juice or some D5 through the IV, that's all fine. I consider that conservative care, not evidence-based maternal care. That's just comfort care. Now, here's the data. So very quickly, remember that pregnancy is a catabolic state. Because of human placental lactogen and other... Antagonist towards insulin. That's why women develop gestational diabetes, for heaven's sakes. There is a constant mechanism in place that ensures gluconeogenesis and even protein breakdown in severe starvation so that the baby will get his or hers, right? Mm, that's right. I mean, even at the expense of maternal stores, mom will go through maternal wasting while the baby has a constant amount of nutrients. Again, even if the mother's stores are being broken down. And it has to be severe famine in order to affect really maternal growth and other issues, thankfully. Okay. So the whole point of giving the mother sugar or something to eat to increase movement. Remember, how long is the fetal sleep cycle?
1: 20 minutes.
0: 20 minutes. By the time you run to the refrigerator and bring her the juice, it's probably going to start moving. So the take home is, again, give them the IV fluids. Fantastic. Give them something to eat. That's that's fantastic. But it's Probably not having a direct effect on fetal movement. By the way, definitely not my opinion. That's all based on previous data. What they did find, which was interesting, is that after maternal glucose challenge, they actually did find increase in fetal heart rate variability. That's weird. Probably because it's more substrate for the cardiac muscle to allow for excursion. Okay? But, But fetal movement actually, based on ultrasound, not maternal perception, but looking at it actually didn't change. So... All of this comes again from historical things where, oh, if you didn't eat, you can affect the baby movement, um, and it doesn't have baby doesn't have enough energy to move. Trust me, the baby has enough energy to move. All right, Clinical pros listeners, we have covered non-stress tests and kick counts, and we covered the affirm trial. The data for a lot of this material has come from the June 2021 ACOG Bulletin on antenatal fetal surveillance. There's a separate bulletin about indications for outpatient surveillance, but the one on antenatal surveillance by itself has to do with the test, which is what we're covering here. We'll do indications later. So Kat, what do you think? Great for podcast?
1: Yeah, I think this was really fun. Thank you for having
0: me. Well, we're going to have you again because we have not covered biophysical profile, a completely misunderstood test. And we're going to tackle that on part two. As always, thanks for being part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.
1: Bye now. (laughs)